Hey to all you fish enthusiasts out there. Whether you're an avid angler or just curious about fish, we'd like to welcome you to Fish of the Week, your audio almanac of all the fish. It's Monday, May 9th, 2022, and this year we're excited to take you on a week-by-week tour of fish across the country with guests from all walks of life. I'm Katrina Liebeck with the U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service in Alaska. I'm Guy Eero, and today we're going to be discussing a fish that has been very frequently requested. This species, it seems to exist at a very interesting crossroads, sort of a nexus in the psyche of American anglers and fish enthusiasts. It's really held in great esteem by both native fish conservationists and also sports fishermen. This belongs to one of our country's most recognizable genre of fish. And so this week I'm honored to be talking about the red-eye bass, Micropterus kusi. We are very happy to welcome our guest, Matt Lewis. Matt's a PhD candidate and presidential graduate research fellow at Auburn University's School of Fisheries. And he also sits on the National Advisory Board of the Native Fish Coalition and is chair of its Alabama chapter. So welcome, Matt. Thank you. Thank you guys for having me. In my experience, these fish are really pretty. And I was wondering if you could provide a description for our listeners and compare and contrast them with largemouth and smallmouth bass. Yeah, so first of all, the name red-eye bass is kind of a misnomer because they do have red eyes, but so can a lot of other bass. So if you're going based off eye color alone, that's the worst metric you can use. So one of the things that I always tell people to look at instead of the the eye color is red-eye bass of any species will have this little eye crescent above the back half of the eyeball. And it can range from turquoise blue to kind of silver. And also they will have these white edges on the upper and lower margins of the caudal fin. And that's also diagnostic for red-eye bass. No other black bass have that feature. Now, when you get into things like hybridization, this might not mean much because hybrids can also have those characteristics. The other thing is you can look at tail or uh, caudal fin shape. So red-eye bass typically have more of a lobe-shaped caudal fin, whereas Alabama bass, smallmouth bass, you know, they'll have more of an angular larger caudal fin and you know with with largemouth and spotted bass and alabama bass they usually have a more solid lateral line so you'll see these vertical blotches that are either coalesce into a solid line or they kind of have a general line shape red eye bass typically have blotches that are evenly spaced all the way to the caudal peduncle or the, the tail fin but in general look for the white edges on the upper and lower caudal fin the crescent above the back half of the eye and vertical blotches that do not touch as they near the the caudal fin. Yeah. And also oftentimes bluish faces and orangish tints on the fins too, or maybe not perfect characters to use, but you see them frequently. Yeah. That's, you know, you can really nerd out on the different species of red eye bass because some have really vibrant, striking red fins like the Chattahoochee. I mean, they are beautiful. And then you get into the warrior and you have this more muted orange type coloration. The Kusa have a brick red coloration in the fins, but just so much blue around the cheeks and the belly and the flank. The Talapusa, you know, they have this like holographic pattern of scales on their dorsal side that are like green and turquoise and blue. And they're also really blue and have a lot of like green coloration. But Across all species, the caudal fin margins that are white and the eye crescent are going to be your your diagnostic markers. 
We know this genus is pretty diverse, and we were hoping you could speak about that just a little bit and kind of how this species fits into that context. Sure, yes. So the the best place to start would be where red-eye bass or when red-eye bass were first described. So they were described in um, 1941 by Hubs and Bailey, which those two guys kind of trekked across the southeast describing all sorts of fish, namely bass. And when they described this fish, we really didn't hear anything else about them for the better part of, you know, half a century or so until a group at Auburn described some diversity within this genus or within the species of micropterus. And they actually formally split them into five different species based on the river systems to which they're endemic. But this, this species complex, I'm going to refer to it as a species complex because there's The five described from 2013, and then there's two additional species that generally are agreed in the scientific community that are merit species status. The work just hasn't been done to formally describe those. So there's seven total described and proposed species of red-eye bass, each endemic to a river system. And so those are in the Mobile Basin, the Cahaba river system, the Tallapoosa, Coosa, and Black Warrior river systems. And then on the Atlantic slope, we have the Savannah river system, Altamaha river system, and the Chattahoochee river systems kind of in the middle of those two basins. So yeah, it's been exciting, but it's also been challenging because people I think are resistant to splitting fish into too many different species. And so there's kind of this current dilemma are these truly different species? Are they subspecies? You know, how do we recognize those? American Fisheries Society still hasn't recognized the, the split. And so I'm kind of working in that vein of trying to better understand the genetic differences between these red-eye bass species and also hopefully lend some credence to their, their species status. For a lot of people listening, they might go back to their high school biology class where you have that biological species concept. It's like, okay, if they can create a fertile offspring, that's what defines a species. But we know in fishes that that doesn't really work well. So I'm curious if you could talk maybe a little bit about these other species concepts that are out there. And in your opinion, in your estimation, what merits a species versus just intraspecific diversity? Yeah, so that's a that's still a hotly debated topic in science. Uh, I think there's like 70 definitions of a species, maybe more than that now. And that can range from things that are just morphological. So looking at differences in scale count numbers and fin coloration differences and things like that. And then it can go into genetics. So, you know, are they genetically different enough to be different species? So it's kind of You take the morphological differences and you combine that with the genetic differences and you just look at those same differences and things that we understand to be different species. So I think most people would agree that largemouth bass and smallmouth bass are different. And if you look at some of the genetic differences we see within these red-eye bass species, they have that same level of, of difference. Previously, most of the work looking at genetics within these species of red eye bass have only done one or two genetic markers. And so what we're doing is we're doing like genome-wide studies looking at hundreds of thousands of SNPs or single nucleotide polymorphisms. So these are individual bases of DNA where we can look across hundreds of individuals and see what 
loci in the genome are actually diagnostic for these different species. And when you find those loci that are diagnostic, if there's enough of them, then we would say that's adequate genetic evidence that these are, in fact, different species. And you combine that with the different fin coloration and vertical barring patterns and things like that. And you have a pretty good case for the fact that these are different species. And you've kind of combined your interest in fishing, correct, with now what you're pursuing in genetics. Could you talk a little bit about kind of how you got here? I spent probably a decade working in human genetics, doing cancer research and Parkinson's disease research, doing these same techniques. But the the question I was asking was, what's different between people with cancer, with Parkinson's disease versus people without? And so I wrote this book, Fly Fishing for Red-Eyed Bass, mainly because I was frustrated that there wasn't anything out there about these fish. I thought they were incredibly cool, was amazed that more people weren't fishing for them. And so I I really just wanted to kind of create a knowledge base for what we know about these fish currently with science, but also kind of couple that with how to fish for them and, and why they're special. And so then the larger goal became, all right, well, how can I use this fish as a proxy for bringing people into understanding conservation, understanding headwaters and, you know, river stream ecosystems. And it was a way to just bring attention to that, but also bring attention to the diversity within bass. There's so many people that think there's just largemouth bass, spotted bass, and smallmouth bass. And I think that bass are overshadowed by salmonids in the U.S., especially among uh, fly fishermen. These individual species of, of fish, these bass, are just as important as all the salmonids that we you know, try to understand and people go crazy over. And so we're trying to build that culture here in Alabama and across the southeast and just kind of hoping that it, it spreads outward to bring more attention not only to bass, but also southern rivers and streams. For your work at Auburn and your your PhD work, are you going out and fishing? Are you fly fishing? Is that how you're collecting these fish? And then once you catch them, like how do you actually take a genetic sample or a, you know, a sample of their body to bring back to the lab? Yeah, so there's two different aspects to my study. So number one, I'm trying to go out in the field and collect putative pure specimens from each of these species to create a genetic panel to identify them. So with that part of the study, I did go out hook and line. So fly rod also fished with some Alabama Department of Natural Resources fisheries biologists, and they were using spinning gear. Sometimes out fished them, sometimes out fished me. So yeah, that was hook and line sampling because when you get up into these really small tributary rocky streams, like there's really just not a, a better way to collect them. You can't go out and shock because you can't get backpack shockers to adequately shock those type waters because these fish can sense that and they will basically run away, hide up under rocks and you know, they're just not really reachable by the current. Or if you're using nets, like there's no way to like, it's not a level ground where you can really adequately use a same net or anything like that, even with conjunction with backpack sampling. So the other part of the study is I'm trying to basically quantify where pure and hybridizing populations are in these different river systems. And so for that part of the study, we partner with another lab at Auburn University, and they have a long history of going out and sampling fish for different projects. They're really good at it. And so they developed this shock canoe, and they also have a shock raft where we can get out on these waters 
And if it's large enough, they can use the shot canoe or the shot raft. And then they take photographs of each individual fish, length, weight. And then we take a fin clip. It's just a pinky nail size fin clip. Typically, we try to use a fin that's bilateral. And so we'll use like a pectoral fin or something like that. And then we'll extract DNA from that fin clip. And that's what we use to determine if they're pure or hybrids. And then we can also tell what they're hybrids with. And so you start to kind of build a map of each river system, where the pure populations are, where the hybridizing populations are. And then the, the next question we're going to be asking is, well, in the areas where we see a lot of hybridization, why is that? Are those areas associated with human disturbance like ag, urbanization, sedimentation, turbidity, all those things that we, we know can facilitate hybridization between species of fish. Those are things we're going to want to investigate, kind of build a, a conservation or management plan for these species in Alabama and the Southeast. That's super cool. Is the hybridization that you're seeing, is that among native species that naturally occur in the same reaches or between the native red-eye bass complex fish and introduced species? It depends on the river system. So outside of the Mobile Basin, Alabama bass have been introduced, which is another species of black bass, have been introduced into the Savannah River system, the Altamaha River system, and the Chattahoochee River system, which are, if you remember, also native red-eye streams. And so in those systems, those non-native introductions have caused a lot of hybridization and what we call introgressive hybridization because there's a lot of back crossing among hybrids and the parental species. So you you can't always detect it just by looking at them. You have to do genetics on these populations. And you can really start to see that there's a lot of hybridization going on. It's been going on for quite some time. To the point in those river systems, there's not many pure populations of red-eyed bass left. And so it's almost a matter of when we lose them, not if we lose them. So there's a saying out there among the trout fly fishing community, the Salmanas, like you're saying, that trout only live in beautiful places. And that's one of the reasons that people go out and fish for them. When people think about bass fishing, a lot of times you're thinking about big reservoirs going, kind of using a Carolina rig or something down on the bottom. In your estimation, is fishing for red-eye basses more similar to fishing for Salmonids like native brook trout or something like that? Or is it more similar to fishing for your largemouth bass? Yeah, red-eye bass fishing, fly fishing specifically, is a lot more like what you would envision trout fishing. So these fish live in small upland streams. And so these are very clear water, very rocky, most of the time higher elevation streams that are, you know, enveloped by mountain laurel and rhododendron and, you know, a lot of the same plant species that you see when you're fishing in the mountains for trout. The only difference really is if you just were to to look at a stream that red-eye bass call home and try to ask someone, do you think this is a trout stream or not? I mean, they look identical. And a lot of people think when they see photos of places I fish, they think I am in the Southern Appalachians, you know, in North Carolina, Tennessee, in some of those streams and the mountains there, but they're here in Alabama and they are full of red-eye bass. And so the streams are just aesthetically pleasing. 
the fish are very colorful, similar to brook trout. So they're commonly called the brook trout of Alabama and they, they don't get very big. So they, you know, max out around 12 inches typically, but your average size that you're going to catch in most streams are probably eight, nine inches. Everything about like the gear that you have, the place that you're fishing looks like trout fishing, but the fish you're catching are these little colorful bass instead of trout. I'm from Alaska. This fish sounds really cool. I've fished for smallies and largemouth basses in Maine, on lakes, in the Penobscot River. If I'm going to come down to Alabama or the Southeast in general, and I, I need one rod and like tackle, what should I, what should I get? What should my setup be? What would you recommend for just kind of an all around good setup to go fishing and try to catch some of these fish? Yeah. So I'm biased. I'm going to say fly rod specifically. You would probably need a eh, three, four weight fly rod. I prefer one that's a little bit shorter. So like seven foot, six inches instead of the standard nine inch fly rod, because you are going through some pretty remote places, having to hike and trying to get around rhododendron and mountain laurel. As far as flies go, I'm a topwater person. So I really like throwing popping bugs and hopper patterns and things like that, that because these fish are so aggressive, very similar to brook trout. So, you know, like if something hits the water and a brook trout's there, it's immediately going to hit it. And that's kind of how these fish are too. They're not very picky, but they're very aggressive and they strike with a lot of gusto. And so, you know, they're there within the first couple seconds of your fly hitting the water. But a lot of people like drifting crayfish patterns or like helgramite patterns. So, I mean, any kind of like big nymph or streamer or something like that, a lot of folks do well with those too. Okay. And what if I have a spinning rod? What would you recommend? Just like a little kind of spinner and run that across the current or what would be the setup for that? With spinning rods, there's two things that I've seen people be really successful with. One is like a really small, like crankbait type thing that resembles a crawfish. It's called a rebel crawl, I think. And so that can be successful. The other thing is just a a worm, like a plastic worm. I'm not familiar with ways to rig those, but I mean, people that do it, it, it's a finesse type of fishing. So it's either wacky rigged or some sort of drop shot rig or something. And are these guys hanging out kind of in a, a pool situation or on the margins or what kind of habitat should I be targeting? You have to find the right river system first. So it has to be somewhere where they actually exist, which isn't everywhere. And then you want to look for water that's, you know, moderate flow with kind of your classic riffle run pool habitat. And so these are typically going to be in the pools adjacent to flow. So, you know, any kind of like plunge pool scenario, you always want to target just like you would for trout, the head of the pool, the tail out of the pool, around the edges, especially if there's a lot of big bedrock or underwater cobbled up rock because they like to hide and that kind of stuff and then you you will catch fish and runs occasionally too but i mean these fish are very much associated with flow and so you're going to catch them just on the edges of that they can be anywhere but that typically i i see them in pools um, adjacent to flow with a lot of bedrock I completely agree with your assessment that they're sort of in the same spots that you'd find trout. And also, as someone who's primarily a spin fisherman, I do want to throw a shout out there for your inline spinners. They have kind of like a teardrop shaped body, a nice blade around them. Inline spinners, I think, typically have like a treble hook or something maybe on the end. Yeah, they they usually have a treble. You can get some that have a single 
But one thing that is nice about using artificials in general as, compo as compared to natural baits like worms or gulp or something is usually the fish will be in pursuit. And so you're more likely to get in the lip or the jaw and not have them take it as deep as like they're trying to ingest it. Right. I agree. Do you guys eat these fish at all? Or is this one that's just kind of like a catch and release kind of no-no to eating? Yeah, it's, I mean, typically it's a catch and release for me and most of my friends. And I think most of the, the fly fishing culture that we've built around this fish, as well as people that use spin fishing and stuff. I think in Alabama, there's always this group of anglers that keep everything they catch and eat it, which is, I mean, it's, it's legal. There's nothing wrong with it. I think with these fish, it's just, they're so small that it's almost just not worthwhile, I think, for a lot of people. But certainly, I've seen people krill, you know, 10, 11-inch red-eye along with any other fish they catch on a trip. And I, I will say that I have eaten some because when we pulled otoliths from all the fish that we collected for the, the panel creation I was telling you about, the reference individuals, we had to obviously kill the fish to get otoliths. Yep. And that's the inner ear bone for folks that don't know. Yeah. So that we could age them. And actually the, the one I caught that was 12 and three quarter inches. That was a nine year old fish. And so red eye bass are the slowest growing black bass. And so the, it takes them around eight, you know, nine years to reach that 10, 11, 12 inch size. So, you know, there's no current restrictions on red eye bass outside of just your daily black bass lemon in Alabama, you can keep 10 bass. I think only four of which could be small mouth. So that's the only caveat, but I think maybe in the future, based on some of the stuff I'm learning and we're learning about red eye bass that may be altered to you know, reduce bag limits specifically on red eye bass too, because if you wipe out a bunch of 10, 12 inch fish from a, a small stream, then that could be your brood stock. So. So let's say I'm a new fisherman. I'm, I'm interested in getting into fishing. Why should I care about all this natural diversity within a species or between similar species? Like, why is that important? Well, what I try to tell people is, I mean, we're kind of seeing the result of introduced bass or hybridization among bass right now, kind of going up the East Coast. So what the result has been is a homogenization of the diversity that existed previously. And so I think the reason you should care, unless you only ever want to catch like one species of bass, you know, it's, it's important that we really get a handle on identifying where these pure populations of bass are from these different species, and then also how to protect them and keep them that way from further invasion. So one aspect of that is education, because in a lot of cases, anglers are the ones actually moving these fish around you know, surveying your water systems, like most of the fishing game agencies are doing now. You know, I think that's why people should care. Obviously, some people, you know, the diversity doesn't mean anything to them. It's I want big fish. And however I get the biggest fish, that's what I want. And, you know, you can't necessarily change someone's mind on that, but we're doing our best. So in addition to not moving fish around, what are some other ways people can help conserve these fish from like a habitat standpoint or, or otherwise? Yeah. So, you know, the big thing with habitat, like so many fish, they're, they're losing their habitat, whether it's through things that increase sedimentation. So 
you know, when a, a section of heavily forested land with a lot of bedrock is all of a sudden logged and converted to ag land, then you have all this erosion with the riparian areas and that leads to a lot of sedimentation in the stream. And so, you know, the way these fish spawn, they kind of rely on, you know, cobbled bedrock and little cobblestone and just not a lot of sediment. And so that can kind of affect their reproduction. So one thing would be, you know, protection of those streamside areas that would prevent things like erosion. You know, pollution's a big thing in Alabama. We There's a lot of these river systems that have chicken processing plants or coal mining. And you know, the effluent from those goes into these systems and also, you know, creates a lot of issues. And so, you know, I think there's a lot of stuff that has to be done at a higher level as far as monitoring and finding people that pollute these streams. The Alabama Department of Environmental Management is so understaffed, it's hard for them to handle everything that comes their way. And so what they typically do is just find the company. And for most big companies like Tyson Chicken, that's okay for them just to pay the money because it's like a slap on the wrist. I mean, they've got plenty of money and they just keep polluting and just pay the fine. And so I think there needs to be stiffer punishments and penalties for for things like that. So now when it comes into areas where we're seeing hybridization and trying to understand why that is, I mean, it could be, you know, habitat improvement. It could be putting in some sort of barrier to prevent upstream migration where there are hybrid and hybrid populations developing. So I hope, I hope that answers your question. Yeah. And just like that general mindfulness of fish. I mean, a lot of times if you look at a stream, you can't really see the fish in there if they're well camouflaged. And I think we just kind of forget a lot of times that all of our waterways have fish and we should be mindful of them. And hopefully, you know, talking to folks like you and having the show can help people understand how cool fish are and maybe they can care about that a little bit more. One of the things that I want to key in on is that you're talking sort of about this value system that some people, uh, you know, that all, all they want is kind of bigger fish and there's not much that you can do about that. And, and then the other thing that I wanted to key on was talking about educating people and at least giving them the opportunity to see sort of what's out there. And one program that sort of hits on both of those that I saw the state of Georgia implemented recently is the Georgia Bass Slam, where they're encouraging people, offering prizes and awards for going out and catching all these different species of bass beyond the sort of big three that you traditionally think of. And I got to participate in that program as an angler, go out and see all this stuff. And I had a great time. And I think that's really been a successful program, encouraging people to get out and target these species that they otherwise wouldn't be. I was just wondering, is, is Alabama have anything similar? And what are your thoughts on programs like this? No, at, you know, as far as at the state level, you know, ADCNR doesn't have anything like that for bass. I mean, they have like master angler and trophy, trophy angler certificates if you catch a certain size of any number of fishes. But um, one thing that we did, and this was right about the time I released my book, is we started a thing called the Red Eye Slam. And so this was kind of the brainchild of my good friend, Jonathan Kelly and myself meeting at lunch one day talking about how do we get people excited about this fish. And so one of the things we did is we kind of took a model, you know, that they use out West for, you know, multiple States have these programs where if you catch all the species of cutthroat trout or groups that you can catch all the species of, and it's just kind of like an accomplishment thing. You get a certificate, you get sometimes a little coin or, you know, some, something to commemorate that. So you could catch all the species in the Mobile Basin. And then we also had one for all seven 
describe a proposed species. And a lot of people jumped on board and really wanted to participate. And I think we had like 60 or 70 people sign up to do it. And we had, I think, maybe 15 complete all seven species. And so what we're trying to do now is decide how to continue that momentum and continue to bring people in. We don't charge anything for that. So it's kind of coming out of our own pockets. And so we're trying to get creative and figure out what to do next. I I love all those, especially the ones you mentioned. Some have coins. If there's a coin involved, (laughs) I'm I'm a sucker for those. (laughs) Matt, it's been great having you on the show. This was a really cool, in-depth kind of look at genetics of a fish. And it was fascinating. So thank you. Thanks, Matt. Yeah, thank you all. All right. Well, thanks. Get out there and enjoy all the fish and definitely check out the diversity within the red-eyed basses. Super cool. Thanks for listening to Fish of the Week. My name is Katrina Liebick, and my co-host is Guy Eero. Our production partner for the series is Citizen Racecar, produced and story edited by Charlotte Moore Lambert, production management by Gabriella Montaquin, post-production by Alex Brower. Fish of the Week is a production of the U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service, Alaska Region Office of External Affairs. We honor, thank, and celebrate the whole community, individual tribes, states, our sister agencies, fish enthusiasts, scientists, and others who have elevated our understanding and love as people and professionals of all the fish. 